0: It's important to note before I launch into some of those details that there was never any study done to look at what are the costs and benefits of net metering? Are there cost shifts? If so, what is the magnitude of that? What is the value of solar and what's a responsible way to compensate people? There was never any sort of of study like that or even utilities proposing in a docket making those kind of claims with any kind of quantifiable, verifiable data. Nevertheless, the utilities saw kind of where the trend was going, even though we were a very small solar market. They saw that as a threat to their monopoly business.
1: When he goes to work fighting for affordable clean energy in Indiana, Ben Inskeep has to walk uphill both ways through snow up to here. Or at least that's what it sounds like to me talking with Ben, Program Director at the Citizens Action Coalition, about their efforts in Indiana. We spoke in August 2023 about the state's retrograde local solar policy adopted to replace net metering in 2017. It was a fascinating bookend to my recent discussion with Sashu Constantine of Vote Solar about California's market. Both states sharply cut compensation for local solar in recent years, but one did so with over a million solar customers on the grid, and the other with less than 10,000. Yet interestingly, the utility arguments in favor of blocking local solar were much the same. I'm John Farrell, Director of the Energy Democracy Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and this is Local Energy Rules, a podcast about monopoly power, energy democracy, and how communities can take charge to transform the energy system. Ben, welcome to Local Energy Rules. Thank you so much for having me, and the admiration goes both ways, John. I'd love to start off and just ask people like what brought them to this work. You know, why are you focused on issues of climate, energy, consumer advocacy? What motivated you to be a leader at at an organization that merges these different issues?
0: Yeah, I would say I started with maybe a more traditional kind of environmental focus, looking at things like land management policy and how we preserve, conserve, protect our, our public lands. Went to graduate school and that's where I really fell in love with energy and energy policy and really grew an appreciation for how the energy sector impacts climate change. And I became really influenced by the desire to to work on mitigating climate change and addressing its pernicious impacts. So that naturally led me to working on issues like renewable energy policy around the country. Did that for a number of years. And then about a year and a half ago, I joined the Citizens Action Coalition. And my admiration for them goes back many years For, for a long time. As a Hoosier by birth, I cared a lot about Indiana policy. You know, was never very high on anybody's priorities when talking about state policy, renewable energy, because uh, we are a bit of a laggard on a lot of these key things. But you know, whenever I would look at what's happening in Indiana, I would always see this organization, Citizens Action Coalition, popping up. They were always involved in intervening in the dockets when, even when nobody else was, and they were lobbying at the state house for for good laws and. They were out raising hell, uh, organizing people and standing up to powerful monopoly utilities. And so long story short, when the opportunity arose to, to join them, I jumped at it and have been thrilled working with them. It's a great opportunity to work on the front lines of the energy transition. We are working on everything in the state from cleaning up coal ash, to distributed energy policy, to rate cases, to working on cutting edge issues like carbon capture and sequestration, project proposals, hydrogen hub proposals, these other types of new energy technologies that are coming down the pike.
1: Thanks for that background. It's always just fascinating to see like the path that people have taken in getting into this work, and then also just a wide variety of the things that you're tackling with the Citizens Action Coalition. I want to ask you about one thing in particular, which is around net metering. So you know, most people who are listeners of this podcast are familiar with net metering as this kind of foundational policy to allow local solar to happen. I mean, it's a sort of an accident of history that the mechanical meters that we had at the time that people started putting solar on rooftops in the 70s and 80s really didn't have a better way to track how we produced electricity. And so the way that the utility could actually credit people for their electricity production was basically to look at the meter and see it would spin forward when you were using energy, it would spin backward when you were producing energy, and they would just take the net effect and that was your bill. Now, in recent years, some places like California or Hawaii have made changes because as Local solar grew very substantially. It started to eat into the revenue base of the utility, and there were concerns raised about who was paying expenses for the grid and a variety of other things. So I don't want to get it too far in the weeds yet, but one of the things I think is so interesting is how you have some states like Hawaii or California where the decision was really driven make changes by the fact that there was a lot of solar, right? Like one in four, maybe even one in three households in Hawaii has solar on the rooftop. In California, the distributed solar market is over seven gigawatts. Indiana, I don't think, has quite as much rooftop solar, but what did they decide to do with the policy and why is this such an important issue for electricity consumers?
0: Yeah, thank you. This has been a long-running saga in the state of Indiana, and it goes back many years, but I'm just going to confine our discussion back to 2017. That's when the, the law that phased out net metering was passed, Senate Enrolled Act 309. It's important to note before I launch into some of those details that there was never any study done to look at what are the costs and benefits of net metering? Are there cost shifts? If so, what is the magnitude of that? What is the value of solar and what's a responsible way to compensate people? There was never any sort of, of study like that or even utilities proposing in a docket making those kind of claims with any kind of quantifiable, verifiable data. Nevertheless, the utilities saw kind of where the trend was going, even though we were a very small solar market, they saw that as a threat to their monopoly business. And so they pushed through this bill, Senate Enrolled Act 309, and that did three major things that I want to focus on for our conversation. First, it reduced the compensation rate, so it phased out net metering and replaced it with what we call an excess distributed generation credit rate, or EDG tariff, and that. Compensation rate specified in the statute is you look back at the previous year's wholesale market prices uh, applicable to the utility. So you look at the the LMP prices in MISO, for instance, and you calculate what that average is. And then you give that as the compensation rate plus a 25% bonus tacked on, kind of waving your hand of, well, we know there's some other benefits that solar provides above the just whatever the wholesale market price is, but we aren't going to bother to figure out what the right number is, so let's just tack on 25%. Second thing it did was it created this very unpredictable credit rate. So that rate is not a long-term rate. It changes every single year. Every single year, utilities look back, what were the wholesale prices last year? They do this calculation. That's the new rate going forward for one year. So as somebody who's maybe wanting to install solar, you really have no idea what the payback period is going to be you don't even know what you're gonna get paid next year for any extra energy you put on the grid. And then the most consequential aspect of this law is the third point, And that is excess distributed generation ultimately became determined to be measured on an instantaneous basis. And this was something that wasn't clear in the statute. It was kind of a vague wording. And so this took going all the way to the Indiana Supreme Court to adjudicate. And it had a really profound impact. So the statute says, When you're figuring out what is excess distributed generation, you know, what is the amount that you're going to be crediting this wholesale rate plus an extra 25%, you need to look at the difference between the kilowatt hours you send to the grid and the kilowatt hours you take off the grid, right? You do this calculation. Sounds an awful lot like net metering, right? It sounds like you're taking the difference between what you're giving to the utility and what you're taking off the grid. And so if you calculate that over a monthly period, that would be very similar to net metering, Utilities interpreted it as taking the difference not over the monthly period, but rather thousands of times per second. So, on an instantaneous basis, if you will. So, if you're exporting anything to the grid, that's getting credited this very low credit rate. If you're taking energy off the grid, they charge you this very high retail rate. So, at first, the IURC upheld the utilities version. We and a number of other groups took that to court, and the appeals court actually agreed with us and and overturned the IURC's decision, the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission, which is our public service commission in the state of Indiana. But then that was challenged at the Supreme Court, who ultimately upheld the utility's interpretation. So long story short is now customers are getting paid a much lower credit rate for any extra energy they generate and share with their neighbors, and that credit rate is extremely unpredictable, changes every year. So it's pretty decent rate right now because we had super high wholesale prices last year when we had the invasion of uh, Russia into Ukraine and uh, energy markets spiked across the country. But then prices are low now in the wholesale power market. So we're expecting that credit rate to crater again next year and then move unpredictably year to year after that.
1: It's really sad to hear not only that they cut the compensation, but that they did it on such a short time. I mean, you have sort of two short time frames, right? Not only how short t- the time frame is for measurement, and then also in terms of the unpredictability, one of the things that we've seen at ILSR in our research on net metering or any, or any kind of solar compensation policy is that that certainty over time is how you can make things work, right? Like it's the ability to predict. And for any business, really, I mean, if you think about it, you're like a little business person. When you put solar on your roof, you're trying to go out and maybe take out a loan and you need to know whether or not you can pay back that loan. But without any kind of certainty... It's hard to imagine how you're going to pay that back.
0: That's the really absurdity of it. You know, when, when utilities are planning their generation, they don't do this. They don't just take whatever the wholesale market price is. No, they're they're going out and contracting with a developer. They're purchasing the project at a known price. They're passing on the full cost plus a markup to consumers. And they know they're going to profit off it for, you know, 30 years in the future. So it's kind of particularly ridiculous because you see utilities now getting approval for large utility-scale solar projects at a price that's higher than the credit rate than for DG customers today. So even though distributed generation provides a whole host of benefits, number one, you don't even need to use the transmission system to deliver the power. But now you have this kind of insult to injury where the utilities are pushing through higher priced projects. And they're getting complete certainty on their rate of return, whereas uh, consumers
1: are left in the dark. Just out of curiosity, what is the rate of return that Indiana utilities are getting on those utility scale projects?
0: Well, the return on equity for our utilities it ranges from about 97 to 10.4%. So when we're looking at their weighted average cost of capital, we're talking 6%, 7 8% for sure. When we're looking at large amounts of solar or wind, it's not uncommon to see utility show in their work papers that this suite of projects is going to give us an extra billion dollars in profit over the next 30 years, whereas consumers are struggling to figure out if
1: it's even going to pencil out over the next 30 years to go solar. I recently did an interview with Sasha Constantine from Vote Solar about California's net metering decision, and one of the things he said that he felt was that other states really have no business making changes to net metering that have so much less solar because the arguments that come up about costs and benefits are largely moot because of the industry size. Could you just give us a sense, you know, I think I mentioned in, earlier on, you know, California has over 7 gigawatts, 7000 megawatts of rooftop solar projects on homes and businesses. How much customer-sited solar does Indiana have?
0: Yeah, we're very different than California as you might expect. Under our net metering program that is now, you know, ended as of 2022, We had less than 200 megawatts come onto the grid from from that. Almost all of that is solar, but there was a little bit of wind and biomass that was net metered. Fewer than 10,000 net metering customers as compared to California that has well over 1 million DG customers. So a very small market comparatively. We don't have the major rooftop solar companies that kind of operate across many states. They have not kind of moved into Indiana, for instance. We don't have the supportive kind of policies In Indiana that would provide incentives or other benefits of rooftop solar that states like California have had for many years. So very different situation here. You know, we have almost 7 million people and less than 10,000 net metering customers. So relatively small market compared to a state like California or Hawaii or some of these other states. I
1: was wondering if you could expand a little bit on what you said earlier about why this decision was made. You kind of alluded to the fact that there wasn't a lot of evidence provided, really no evidence about a need for a change in terms of cost to consumers or anything like that. It sounds like the utilities wanted it. Why do they want it? What is so important to them about curtailing rooftop solar, even when it was such a small fraction of the power that was being provided in in Indiana?
0: Yeah, great question. And I will answer it very shortly, but I, I do want to also mention one problem with this new policy is that we don't even know how many people are going solar anymore. There's no reporting requirement for utilities. So we don't even know how many customers are enrolling under this new excess distributed generation tariff because utilities aren't even reporting that information consistently or in any public document for the most part. There's one or two exceptions. But getting to your question about why, so why did Indiana change its policy? I think the answer is very clear and very obvious probably to a lot of your listeners, but it goes to who wields a lot of power when it comes to passing our laws in the state. namely i'm talking about our electric utilities and particularly our investor-owned electric utilities indiana has five of those electric investor-owned utilities including duke energy aes nipsco inm and centerpoint and so these utilities were really the kind of the architects behind this this law changing and they They wield tremendous power in our state. Some of these utilities have been operating in the state for over 100 years. They have very close connections to to lawmakers, to to power brokers. They give a lot of money in terms of campaign donations, and they force ratepayers to pay for their trade association dues and a lot of other, uh, their influence campaign costs, if you will. Ostensibly, their, their direct lobbying costs are removed from rates, but I think we all know that there's a lot of costs that still wind their way into rates one way or another that are designed to influence lawmakers, regulators, uh, people in power, the general public's perception of utilities, and so forth. So really the driving force behind uh, Senate Enrolled Act 309 that passed in 2017, that phased out net metering, were the electric utilities and kind of were the arguments made. They made all the traditional arguments to lawmakers that you've, you've probably heard a million times about cost shifts and about this is, you know, technology for the rich and so on and so forth. You know, it's important to note that when this law passed, we're talking about kind of a solar market that, that is about the fifth of the size that uh, net metering grew into over the, the subsequent five years while it was kind of slowly being phased out. So very, very small amount. We're talking like 40 megawatts, of total distributed solar on the grid when that law was enacted. So you can really tell this is, this wasn't a meaningful impact. It wasn't really harming customers and utilities didn't really have any evidence about why the policy needed to change, yet they were still successful in getting this law enacted.
1: we're going to take a short break. When we come back, I ask Ben about the burgeoning interest in antitrust and how it might apply to investor-owned utilities, whether there's a meaningful path to overturn Indiana's bad local solar policy, and what advice he has for other advocates working in conservative-dominated states. You're listening to a Local Energy Rules podcast with Ben Inskeep, Program Director at the Citizens Action Coalition. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan, and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you've probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots organizations. and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits, and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, back to the program. I've been looking at net metering and interconnection and some of these other key policies that impact the ability of communities to advance clean energy for a long time. ILSR has a annual scorecard where we actually rate states on the basis of whether or not they have policies that are supportive of city level or even individual level energy progress. One of the things that's been really interesting about that, and ILSR sort of broadly has been looking at corporate power in the economy and sort of the revival of antitrust, which is the anti-monopoly laws that we've had on the books for many years and often unenforced, so, generally speaking, these investor owned utilities, because they are public monopolies, are exempt from antitrust regulation under the theory that utility regulators, like the Indiana Utility Regulation Commission, is overseeing what those utilities are doing and making sure that it's protecting the public interest. But one of the things I thought it was interesting in his essay is he looked at that from an anti monopoly, antitrust perspective, and he said, you know what, regulators don't typically think about competition and think about the actual market when they are making those kinds of decisions they more often than not are only looking at this issue of is this rate like well designed is it prudent and reasonable you know some of those kind of key terms that pop up in utility regulation and his argument was if in a utility docket where they're talking about interconnection policy or net metering compensation that the commission is not actually scrutinizing potential impacts on market participants like those independent solar companies or for example in a lot of states now we're having conversations about ev charging and being provi- being provided by non-utility companies that if commissions don't think about this and it's not part of the public record this issue of competition they could actually expose utilities to antitrust scrutiny and i'm just kind of curious what you think of that and if you think it would be welcome for us to have more antitrust scrutiny of utilities, given the experience you've had with net metering policy in Indiana? Well, we definitely need
0: more antitrust scrutiny, especially when it comes to our utilities. I think that there's tremendous amount of evidence showing their systemic way they've undermined democracy, they've wielded their power in ways that are undermining the public interest. I do find the arguments that Michael War kind of put forth to be kind of interesting academically to consider. Uh, when I look at it, its practical impacts or ability to kind of effectuate it in the state of Indiana, I, I do see a number of challenges that that maybe would limit its its possibility specific to Indiana and maybe some other similarly situated states. I think probably the biggest drawback or biggest uh, issue is that our General Assembly can just pass a law <laughs> that kind of negates these kind of arguments. So for instance, this uh, Senate Enrolled Act 309 was passed by our General Assembly it spelled out very clearly kind of what that compensation rate is and how it was to be calculated but there was a dispute over kind of how you how you measure excess distributed generation that was was taken all the way to supreme court but the actual compensation rate is, is spelled out in the statute 1.25 times last year's wholesale wholesale price essentially i think that's the major problem is that our utility commission is not you know does not just kind of end net metering or or, or institute a policy on its own accord it was actually the General Assembly that passed this law. So when I look kind of in Indiana, three of the kind of you know, challenges that I see are, one, uh, legal standing. We, we have, unfortunately, some bad precedent in Indiana that can make it really difficult for kind of a public interest organization like the Citizens Action Coalition to challenge uh, a policy in court. It's not impossible, but it, there, there are some pretty big barriers, if you will, that can limit your opportunities there. Second is, I would say, we don't have some of these really big distributed solar companies in the state. The, the folks that might have the the capacity, the resources, the budgets to litigate this kind of a case. So when you're when we're just talking about, you know, mostly we have a, kind of like a, a lot of local or and a few regional rooftop solar companies. Much easier path for them is just to go next door. You know, go 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 to the state next door. And operate there, as opposed to waging a multi-year, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars legal battle. And then, last, I would say that even if that pathway was successful, the courts agreed that there was, you know, some antitrust issue, and they, you know, slapped the utility on the wrist. Um, I think the utilities would then likely go to the general assembly and get the law changed, which we have unfortunately seen a number of times in the past in Indiana, where we get a favorable ruling in court. The very next legislative session, the utility is working behind the scenes and getting uh, a law passed to essentially negate the court ruling. And that unfortunately happened multiple times in the last decade. And so you also have to think through that aspect as well. So even if you go through the time, the expense, the trouble, and you're victorious, that victory could be very short-lived.
1: I agree with you right now that this is maybe an academic exercise in most places. One of the things that I've noticed is even among the sort of energy attorneys I've talked to. They've often said, well, if I was going to litigate, I'd probably pick an easier law to win on because there's such a poor history of antitrust enforcement. One of the things I've heard of though that's interesting is some states attorneys general, which, you know, it may also be not a good venue for you in in Indiana, have been getting interested in this. But also to the degree that these antitrust laws are federal, those decisions might not rest with a state legislature. Like they could pass a law to do something, but if it is preempted by federal antitrust law, as the Federal Trade Commission seems to be reinvigorating, there might also be some opportunities there. So I don't know, I I remain optimistic in the long run, but I think you lay out a lot of good reasons why we shouldn't be optimistic in the short run that antitrust is going to give us any kind of opening to contend around some of these issues of net net metering.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a a compelling um, argument just from... The standpoint of how we're framing our public policy and how we want to change that public policy going forward, we, we do need to figure out new strategies to undermine the power that our utilities have and the, they're wielding across many states in this country. So definitely open-minded to all that. There are, there are some pretty tricky challenges. How do you sort out whether a utility is doing a specific action for anti-competitive reasons versus we've seen utilities make a lot of Arguments just on like the cost shift issue. And so I feel like a utility could maybe push that kind of a an argument in bad faith, even though there's maybe weak evidence for it or they, for whatever reason, I think they would be able to come up with a public facing explanation for the change, even if behind the scenes, their real motivation, the underlying motivation is to snuff out competition.
1: Oh, I think we can count on them to come up with some good arguments in bad faith around this. You didn't mention it, but I always think about reliability as sort of the last refuge of the utility scoundrel in any kind of public policy dispute, that something about reliability will come up and they will be asking everybody to defer to them as managers of the grid and what constitutes something that is safe and reliable. So tossing aside antitrust, I was interested in sort of asking you about that academically, but there have been cases of net metering decisions curtailing local solar that have been overturned before by state regulators, legislators, even ballot measures do you have any kind of prospect for reversing this decision in Indiana? Do you feel like it would be in the best interests of Indiana electricity consumers? But also feel free, like you're, I think, very well placed to know like, is this a fight you would want to pick? So I guess I'm curious number one, is there any hope for picking this fight and winning? And if not, what are the fights that you are trying to pick that can advance clean energy in a way that's good for Indiana consumers?
0: Absolutely. We support the repeal of of Senator Roldact 309, the return to net metering or a reopening of this issue and you know, having a thoughtful discussion about creating a policy that works going forward. So we'd very much love to see the General Assembly reconsider the current law and find a way to make a viable pathway forward for folks to be able to go solar. Currently, we see that as a pretty challenging pathway with the, with the current General Assembly. There's a lot of challenges there in getting that law changed. One of the things we are focusing a lot more on right now is community solar and working with a broad coalition of groups in Indiana. We just formed the, the Hoosiers for Community Solar group earlier this year, and we are all working together to try and get third-party independent community solar passed in Indiana. So we can have more distributed solar. We can have uh, solar available to folks that uh, can't put it on their roofs. And so we see that as a, as a mechanism for at least trying to advance that conversation in the short term. Even if in the long term, we are very much interested in finding better pathways to rooftop solar and fixing our current policy there. So I think the most promising pathway would be General Assembly fixing the law because this was a General Assembly law that created this issue in the first place. But there is one other pathway maybe worth mentioning, and that is utilities do have authority under current law to propose alternative tariffs if they wanted to, or if, for instance, as a result of a settlement agreement in a case, they were required to as part of that settlement, they could put forth an alternative solar tariff that could provide a better structure, a better compensation rate, a better measurement of distributed generation and, and how you're, you're compensated. So that's a potential possibility as well. As you can imagine, utilities have not been forthcoming with, with such a proposal to date. So we are continuing to work all potential pathways. You know, another way we're trying to work to just get more clean energy in the state of Indiana is doing putting a lot of resources behind our involvement and in integrated resource planning. And looking for viable pathways to have a more holistic consideration of distributed generation as a resource that could be selected within an integrated resource plan, as well as make sure that resources like solar, wind, battery storage are all fairly being considered in integrated resource planning. And that's been very successful to date, I would say, a surprising success story in the state of Indiana. We've had four out of our five investor-owned utilities commit to closing all of the, the coal plants that they own by the end of this decade. So we are a very traditionally coal-heavy state. We were 90% coal just a decade or two ago. We're now down to about 50% coal in terms of our electricity grid. And we're going to see that continue to shrink. And we're building lots of solar and wind in the meantime. And we're pushing to make sure it's not just the utility scale stuff, but also the tremendous benefits that come from local distributed energy as well.
1: It's so interesting to hear you talk about the distributed energy as a resource. We worked with some folks in Minnesota a couple of... Resource planning and proceedings here. I could come up with kind of a model for solar adoption in different states that could help kind of give an illustration of, well, here's how much solar might happen if you do this and at what price. Vote Solar in particular has been doing a really nice job, I think, of articulating that. So I wish you good luck with that. (laughs) Yeah. Kudos to you. Kudos to Vote Solar. Kudos also
0: to our partners at Solar United Neighbors. We are looking at that very model that you all put together and that you all have been pushing. And we're looking for ways to do the same here in Indiana. Really appreciate the work that you've done on leading leading this issue and really grateful for, for these great partners we have that are helping us push this issue in, here in Indiana.
1: Well, I just should at least say a tip of the hat to Will Kenworthy at Vote Solar. We did, we did the modeling work at ILSR feeding off of a different project because we were just curious, like, how much local solar could you get and how would that inform how much capacity the utility should ask for? But it was really Will who came up with this idea. But what if we model it as a resource and actually plug it in as like, how should the utility pay for these distributed resources and acknowledge their value? So uh, a good meeting of the minds. And certainly he and vote Solar have done much more to actually take advantage and use that model than anyone else. So anyway, it was nice to spend a little time talking about it because if there's other folks listening who are thinking about ways to get their state to move on distributed solar, it's been an intriguing way to talk about distributed generation, not just as like a net metering and things that happen outside of the commission and the rate case and the and the resource planning process, but as things that can be included in it.
0: Yeah. And these integrated resource planning stakeholder sessions are outside of kind of docketed proceedings in Indiana. It really is a, a great forum for Having a meeting of the minds with folks at utilities, with other stakeholders, opportunities to, to collaborate on uh, thinking through things. So we've been really grateful that we've, we've had a lot of productive meetings, stakeholder sessions, opportunities to kind of improve with each cycle. With each IRP cycle, we've seen you know, measurable improvements with how things are done. And we think this is kind of an exciting way to, to continue that improvement, to, to have a more holistic and better way of considering DG and how it can provide a lot of benefits to ratepayers now and into the future.
1: So given the struggles that you've had with advancing distributed generation, with making sure that utilities are doing things in a way that's in the public interest, if you had a magic wand that you could wave to fix the worst problems of the electricity system in Indiana or elsewhere, where would you point it? Where do you see as the worst problems of the system and and the really the root causes of the struggles that you have trying to advance clean energy and, and affordability?
0: Yeah, I mean, big picture, I think our investor-owned monopoly utility business model needs to change. And that's at the root of a lot of our problems. We need to get back to the focus of the public interest and having essential electricity service really be focused on serving the public interest. Now, in terms of immediate problems facing our consumers in Indiana, I would go broader than just thinking about solar, distributed generation, climate change. I would say we are facing kind of an affordability crisis in the state. And that's one reason we, we support distributed generation, energy efficiency, these other technologies, is because we think in the long run that they help lower costs, they, they help consumers reduce their bill impact. But when it comes to a lot of folks who are struggling financially right now, we're seeing an epidemic of people being disconnected from the grid. So priority number one for me, if I had my way, would be to address our current disconnection crisis, where we have our investor-owned utilities disconnecting customers from from essential life-saving electricity service, from water service, from other utilities, because they can't afford these never-ending rate increases that we're seeing. Electricity service, as your listeners probably are very acutely aware, it's, it's an essential service. You need it to particip- participate in society. People need it just to stay alive if they have medications that are refrigerated or they use medical equipment that relies on electricity. And so we really do need to kind of end this model where if a for-profit company that's controlling the grid that's brokering our laws, <laughs> if they can just shut off your power because you're no longer helping them profit and you can't pay your bill, that's a crisis. So if I had my way, thinking very you know big picture, what what could possibly be done would be some sort of government run program that that goes to folks that are struggling to pay their bills that they go into low-income communities and they help these communities and the people living in them through first retrofitting their houses, you know, making sure there's no health and safety issues, closing up the house envelope, doing weatherization, energy efficiency, giving people rooftop solar right on their roofs, you know, free of charge. That kind of a program funded through a tax on the top 1% uh, earners in America, for instance, could have untold benefits in terms of helping people stay in their homes, not be homeless, reducing their financial concerns and, and immediate issues, it could help reduce their inability to pay, and it would also be helping address our climate crisis while creating tons of local jobs. So there are creative solutions out there. I know that's pie in the sky thinking to a lot of folks and, and might go counter to a lot of folks where they're thinking policy is achievable. But that's kind of where my thoughts are, is that we really do need to help the most vulnerable people. We need to help those who are struggling. And it's a bummer that you know rooftop solar is less affordable in Indiana, for instance. But when it comes to like immediate crises, crisis number one to me is making sure people are connected to electricity service. You, you have to address that issue before you then address, okay, how can we clean up the sources of energy? How can we make sure distributed generation is equitably distributed across, across incomes and across other demographic factors, make sure it's not just benefiting the most fortunate among us. So, I, that might not be exactly where you're you're taking that question, but I think I think it's important to to emphasize this point because I think it's something I didn't really realize or place as much emphasis on until I got into my current role as more of a consumer advocate, and I educated myself more and I learned more about what was happening, and I saw the connections between making sure folks have stable, reliable, affordable electricity, and how that's going to then influence our ability to to meaningfully put more solar on the grid, clean up our grid, and lead to a prosperous future for all of us.
1: I think it's wonderful to be thinking about sort of the broad impact there and how many people are simply cut off from this essential service all the time. I mean, I think COVID really brought that home when there was a crisis of people, you know, out of work, unable to make payments, utilities just steamrolled ahead with their cutoffs for non-payment. But it really is at the crux of this for so many things. And it's interesting how many different ways we have to address this problem and yet how few ways we have implemented can i just say too i i mean you were mentioning at the upfront of like why it is that electricity is an essential service right you might have medication that is refrigerated you might have medical equipment or whatever but i think it's just worth pointing out like i don't think most people could even imagine trying to live in a house without electricity period like your refrigerator requires electricity. Are you prepared to feed yourself day in and day out without refrigerated food? Like how many people do that? People must do that. But I just like, I can't even imagine. Like my refrigerator is stuffed full of stuff. It falls out on me all the time. Like I don't get how people could even figure out how to manage things like eating and drinking without refrigeration. And so the idea that we have to somehow justify on some like higher level basis of your medication and you could die, it's like, or you could just have a really hard time feeding yourself, because how do you do that without a refrigerator? Absolutely. And
0: with climate change happening, I think it really highlights more reasons why. For instance, higher temperatures make it literally you know, impossible to live in a house when it's 100 plus degrees outside. Your body cannot withstand that heat for long periods of time, particularly vulnerable people the forest fires up in canada i think highlighted for those of us in the midwest who had not experienced that kind of uh, level of poor air quality to that extent at least this past summer just the importance of being able to go inside and have filtered air to breathe you know having air conditioning having air purification it's damaging to breathe in high amounts of these particulate matter from forest fires and if you can't escape that, then yeah, it's going to have a really dire impact on on health. So yeah, we could go on all day, but I think this summer has really highlighted these other additional issues of just the essential nature of these utility services for me. And uh, I hope it has got a lot of other folks thinking about that too.
1: I'm kind of curious what advice that you would give. There are many states that are dominated by conservative legislatures that are not motivated by climate change, for one thing, and those issues that we just discussed they're often more sympathetic to local solar, although clearly, as you've illustrated with Indiana, a little bit too sympathetic to the investor-owned utility relative to their beliefs, more maybe more libertarian beliefs in local solar. So I guess what advice do you have for folks who are trying to advance affordability, clean energy, local solar in other states that are dominated by conservatives to help maybe preserve access to local solar, but just to even preserve access to ways to advance clean energy and, and other solutions that keep electricity affordable.
0: Well, gosh, if you have the solutions here, uh, let me know because we are trying ourselves to navigate these waters and it's definitely challenging. So, so first I want to say, if that does describe you, if you are somebody working in in one of these States, and I do want to say, thank you so much for your work. It's often thankless work. It's often um, not given the attention and people aren't aware of the sacrifices yeah, all that goes into the frustration of maybe working in an environment that can you you encounter a lot of failure um, or it feels like failure because year after year it's it's really hard to make the positive change you're trying to to do. So so thank you to those folks that aren't giving up and that are are continuing to push on this. Your work is valuable and we really appreciate you. So in terms of what I've seen working in Indiana and working in, in similar contexts, you know I think one aspect is focusing on building broad coalitions. If it's just the Citizens Action Coalition going up against the, the five biggest utilities in the state of Indiana. We're going to lose most of the time. They make billions of dollars a year. They have very sophisticated, uh, dozens of lobbyists. They outnumber us uh, tens of thousands of employees to to you know a dozen of us. So we certainly can't can't beat them on our own. And that's exactly why you know we see the wisdom of things like joining broad coalitions for supporting community solar, coalitions that include conservative groups, liberal groups, religious groups, public interest organizations, business organizations. I think that's really how you can take on powerful entrenched interests is by having that kind of a broad coalition that can make the case before lawmakers, that can speak to the very different perspectives and ideologies across lawmakers. I think it's important to emphasize some folks who maybe ha- haven't spent a lot of time in a conservative state might think all Republican lawmakers are, are the same or very similar, but we actually see there's a very broad spectrum of interests, of philosophies, of ideologies just within the Indiana Republican Party, for instance so it's important to get to know those lawmakers to spend a lot of time working with them to find champions and there's very different perspectives among republican lawmakers when it comes to these issues so it's important not to write them off and it's important to spend a lot of time and effort on the ground and talking with them educating them not speaking down to them not you know not thinking that they they don't know about the issue i think that's a, that's where a lot of uh, democrats kind of often fall into this trap of thinking Republicans just aren't educated on the issue. I just need to, to educate them. And oftentimes that's not the case. It's just you have a different political philosophy, a different ideology. And so it's often finding common ground, finding where you might have ideological differences, but you you still agree on this narrow issue of solar makes a lot of sense, whether I'm motivated for, for the reasons of climate change or whether you're motivated for reasons of independence and property rights and local ability to reduce your energy bill as a uh, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness in your district. So I, I think that's kind of one other important thing. And then oftentimes we're fighting and it's, it's kind of asymmetric warfare, right? You're kind of the guerrilla groups that are that are working on these issues. You don't have the power. You have to look for creative ways to to fight, to, to raise this issue in the public, to work with journalists and others who can, can shine a light on these issues and make sure the public is informed and the public is your is your best asset. you know, is getting people mobilized and organized. You have to get people organized and out there raising this issue, bringing the salience forward and demanding their lawmakers take action because without them behind you, you're very easy to ignore.
1: Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining this episode of Local Energy Rules and talking about the struggle of our local solar and many other issues around clean energy in Indiana. and thank you for your work and that uphill fight. Those of us who have had the opportunity to work in places where it's not quite so hard, really appreciate those of you who are struggling through the most challenging places.
0: Well, thank you so much, John. And we're very grateful to have so many great partners like yourself across all the states that are fighting with us in solidarity. So keep up the good
1: work. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Local Energy Rules with Ben Inskeep, Program Director at the Citizens Action Coalition of Indiana about the state's backward local solar policy and the struggle to advance affordable clean energy in a state dominated by five investor-owned utilities and a conservative legislature. On the show page, look for links to the Citizens Action Coalition website where you can learn about their efforts to protect affordable electricity access for Indiana residents and to advance clean energy like community solar. Also, look for a link to my recent interview with Sachu Constantine about net metering changes in California made on the basis of remarkably similar arguments for a state with an utterly different solar market. On the website of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, look for our 2023 Community Power Scorecard to see where Indiana measures up compared to other states in its policies to support local clean energy. By now, I imagine you have a good guess. But in the scorecard, you can also learn about your own state's environment, as well as see how states can earn a top score for energy democracy. Local Energy Rules is produced by myself and Maria McCoy, with editing provided by audio engineer Drew Burschbach. Tune back into Local Energy Rules every two weeks to hear how we can take on concentrated power to transform the energy system. Until next time... Keep your energy local, and thanks for listening.